Friends, we're in the second week of our series called Why. We're digging into these really important questions that I imagine most people of faith have asked at one time or another. Last week, we looked at why does God allow suffering? And this week, we're going to be answering the question, where is God when we suffer? But I always appreciate when shows I'm watching do a little recap of what happened last time. So that's what we want to do. I want to catch you up on last week, how we laid out why this question or problem of suffering is so hard to answer. There's this little equation that sums up the problem of evil or suffering. And there's three components to it. The first is that God is all powerful. The second is that God is all good. And the third is that evil exists. How can all three of these things be true at the same time? It makes sense to us if only two out of three are true, right? Like if God is all powerful, but not all good, then evil exists because God wills it. Or if God is all good, but not all powerful, then evil exists because God isn't powerful enough to stop it. But how can these three things be reconciled? If God is all good and all powerful, how can evil exist? Last week, we looked at how this equation gets solved, that God created a world where evil was possible because of the greater good of free will. We define evil as any force or occurrence that is in opposition to God's goodwill for creation. Then we talked about two major categories of evil, moral evil and natural evil. We talked about a major reason uh, for, for suffering being the case of, or, or, or why people encounter suffering is because of moral evil. This is pain and suffering done willfully by human agents with intent to harm. So much of the suffering we experience is because of people misusing the good gift of free will for evil. This is not what God wills. This is the evil people cause. I think this makes sense to most of us. We can wrap our minds around this. And this is how those three things can be true because of free will. All right. But what about the pain and suffering that isn't the result of human choice? This is the category of natural evil. And in my view, my experience, it's a lot harder to wrap your mind around. Natural evil is when no human agent can be the cause. So the tension between these types of evil, the tension in that equation of trying to answer the question, why does God allow suffering? The attempt to answer that question in fancy theological terms is called the theodicy. Coming up with a reason or a greater good as to why suffering or evil exists. And then the other side of that is inscrutability or, or embracing the mystery of God, that God's ways are above our ways. And there's some questions that we're just not going to be able to answer on this side of eternity. Now, even if all these concepts make sense to us, even if you watched last week or you're tracking with me now, that still doesn't really answer the question or it isn't relevant or pertinent to the question, well, where is God when we suffer. I don't know about y'all, but my guess is that you've been cooking at home a lot more recently. A lot more. At our house, I do most of the cooking, and it's given me reason to kind of branch out a little bit. I've got a Traeger smoker, and it is amazing. Y'all know if we got to be stuck at home, you might as well eat good, right? So I've been trying all kinds of new stuff. Pizza, meatloaf, even. I got fancy and, and went and got some fish. Right. I went over to the that part of the grocery store for like the first time in my life. Now, my boy, Joe, 
And other barbecue purists or traditionalists, sometimes they kind of look down upon us pellet smoker Traeger people because it, it almost seems like cheating, right? Because uh, the way the Traeger works is it is it regulates the temperature of the smoker using these little wood pellets. And you, you almost set it like an oven and you kind of set it and forget it. It's, it's super easy. For me, the convenience is part of the appeal. Like sitting next to a smoker for 14 hours, ain't nobody got time for that. So the Traeger has just been awesome. Now, one of the things I notice about everybody who wants to criticize uh, pellet smokers is that they still drive cars. I don't see anybody Fred Flintstone in it, so I ain't hearing any of that. Here's my point. If given the choice, most of us will choose the path of least resistance. Right? Think about going to Target. Remember going to Target? Wasn't that fun? Now imagine yourself walking into Target. They've usually got the two doors, right? There's the door you open yourself or the automatic door. Which one do you choose? Go ahead, just say it to the screen. It, it will. It, I will absorb your answers. I promise. Or, or, or someone, please text me if you have a push mower that you intentionally bought that doesn't have like the automatic drive feature. Anybody? No way. If given the choice, we'll always want to choose the easier thing. We'll choose whatever is easier or less painful. And sometimes we unknowingly take these same preferences to our faith. And this leads to a faulty expectation that being a Christian somehow makes you exempt from suffering. There's a whole version of, the, of Christianity out there called the prosperity gospel. And the idea is this. If you simply have enough faith or pay enough money, then you will receive nothing but blessings and you'll be immune to evil. Nope. Suffering was central to the mission of Jesus. Where is God when we suffer? Jesus joins our suffering and secures a future without it. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is traveling with his disciples and we see a huge turning point. One of Jesus' disciples named Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this kind of starts the second act of the book of Matthew. And Jesus begins to peel back the curtains a bit for his disciples on what exactly it'll mean for him to be the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah is simply a word that means anointed or chosen one. And, and this is the title of, of the person long prophesied or long awaited by the nation of Israel to restore their country to, to, to greatness. From that time on, we read in Matthew 16, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Wait, what? This is about an action-packed verse as I can think of. So the disciples are all ready for Jesus to lay out his strategy to defeat the Romans who are, who are occupying or controlling Jerusalem. They're ready for the Messiah to start making some moves, Soon we'll be in victory formation, they're thinking. And the plan, Jesus says, is for him to suffer many things to the point of death. Oh, and then BTW, after he dies three days later, he, he won't be dead. I mean, there's just a lot packed into that single verse we just read. 
it certainly seemed wild to Peter, who is the, the disciple who just a moment ago got the final Jeopardy question right when it came to Jesus being the Messiah. And this is not what Peter thought that Jesus meant. And he says as much in verse 22. Peter took him, him as Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. So Peter has the same instinct we do. He doesn't want Jesus to suffer. Why would he want to choose that? He tries to dissuade Jesus from the path that leads to suffering. Why should it have to be like that? You're the Messiah. And then Jesus' rebuttal to Peter feels pretty rough. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Ooh. How is Satan? Does that strike you as a, as a bit harsh? We spent some time on Satan last October, and I'd invite you to find the Enemy Origins series that we had a two-week sermon series about the devil. You can find that on our website. I encourage you to check that out. In that, we explored that one of the meanings of Satan is adversary or opposition. Jesus had shared his resolve to go to Jerusalem, and Peter is literally standing in the way, obstructing him, opposing Jesus' mission. We also have an interesting link here between Peter's attempt to get Jesus to sidestep the cross and the temptation of Jesus by the devil in the desert. We spent the second week of our Enemy Origins series on that episode of Jesus' life. Now, what Peter and the devil had in common is both of them are trying to get Jesus to take the kingdom without the cross. When Satan tried to tempt Jesus, it was to have the kingdom without the cross, for Jesus to choose the path of least resistance. I believe this is part of what Jesus means when he tells Peter, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Our concern as people is typically to suffer as little as possible. Most of us will do anything to avoid suffering, but Jesus has set himself on a collision course with the cross. Jesus is emphatic that this is how it must happen, not only for him, but he is about to set a model for all who would believe and follow him. Then Jesus said to his disciples in verse 24, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To me, this verse is both ominous and hopeful at the same time. We're going to be with Jesus, but the path isn't going to be easy. I love what Methodist founder John Wesley said about this verse. A rule that can never be too much observed. Let him in all things deny his own will, however pleasing, and do the will of God, however painful. What does it say about the character of God that the solution to the problem of evil was a suffering savior? This, this doesn't add up on paper. It didn't make sense to Jesus' original followers. And this is part of what distinguishes Christianity from other religions. Who wants to worship a guy that was executed like a common criminal? Who is impressed with a God who doesn't come to conquer, but to suffer? Well, Christians are. The New Testament speaks of God's plan to resolve the problem of evil. We read this in Hebrews chapter 2. 
God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. God took the cross, people's method of execution, and turned it into an instrument of salvation. Jesus joins our suffering to secure a future without it. Jesus took the worst of people, the most torturous way to die ever invented. And he said, okay, that's how you want to play it. God worked within human free will to use the event of the crucifixion to bring about resurrection. That's what we recently celebrated on Easter. And we keep reading from Hebrews chapter 2. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Jesus died an innocent, blameless man. He suffered the most brutal and shameful death possible. But that wasn't the end. Three days later, he rose from the grave, showing that he was stronger than the devil and the evil powers that executed him, even stronger than death. He set free all those who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of death and dying. Man, that's a good verse. We all are very familiar with that feeling. Right now, that fear even creeps up when we think about going to a park or doing something formally simple like going to get groceries. But we experience that fear of death and dying in all sorts of ways. We know this fear when people we love get sick, when our hairs begin to turn gray, and the years are going by quicker than we could have ever imagined. We can't believe we're going into middle school or high school or finishing kindergarten or moving on to college or whatever's next. We feel this fear when our children's pictures remind us how quickly time goes, that time is slipping away. We know this fear when we've lost people that we love dearly, spouses and brothers and sisters and dear friends. Deep down, we all know that eventually death awaits us all. Great sermon, Pastor. Friends, Jesus came to set us free from all of that. All of that. Jesus joins us in our suffering to secure a future without it. Throughout human history, a priest has stood as a mediator between God and people. In Jesus' death, he proved that there was no limit to the lengths God would go to prove his great love for us. And in Jesus' resurrection, he secured our future when he proved that not even death could, could contain the hope that we have. Christianity, friends, doesn't mean an exemption from suffering. Often it's the opposite. And, and, and so if, if you're kind of into faith, 
in order to keep bad things from happening to you, you may be in the wrong business. I was listening to a podcast not too long ago, and I heard an ad for a Mini Cooper. You know this brand, the little cars, the Minis? This is what it said. They were advertising the Mini Countryman, which they dubbed the biggest Mini yet. From their website, the most spacious Mini ever. If, uh, if, like, if you're looking for a car with a lot of space, maybe don't get a Mini. I don't know. It seemed a little odd to me. Seemed like they were in the wrong business. Right? If we think Jesus offers an exemption from suffering, we, we can not only look to his example, but the great heroes of the faith. Right? You may be in the wrong business if, if you think your faith is going to exempt you from pain and suffering and evil. Let's look at some examples. Peter, who we read about today, who Jesus called the rock upon which I will build my church. Peter was executed on a cross like his savior, only he didn't think himself fit to be executed in the same manner. And so he had the cross turned upside down. Years prior to that, this is what Peter told his congregation. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Well, let's think about Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament. He made us a nice little list, a, a little snapshot of some of the ordeals that he endured. You may, if you're not sitting down, go ahead and take a seat. Get out a pen. We read this in 2 Corinthians. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three is a lot. I think one shipwreck would be a lot. Three shipwrecks is, is a lot. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. But elsewhere in the New Testament, this man testifies to the goodness of God. Despite all that he's been through, he wants to follow the example of Christ and to claim the hope of new life in his name. We read this in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's my view that we're not going to know all the answers to why. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do some people get better and some don't? Why do some people make evil choices with irreversible consequences? Why doesn't God intervene in natural evil? We won't know all these answers to why. But friends, we can know Christ and put our faith in his promise that we too can somehow share in his resurrection. I love that. How? Somehow. This month was the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. And a lot of us are old enough to not need a lot of explanation. And the ones that are young enough to need one 
I think are also young enough to be able to Google it. It was one of the darkest days in American history. It was a prime example of moral evil. And when you visit the memorial in Oklahoma City, it's incredibly powerful. On the same block and across the street from the federal building at the site of the bombing, on that same site was the site of the parish house of St. Joseph's Catholic School, where it once stood before the blast. In its place now stands a statue of Jesus, along with stones to memorialize the lives lost. On the statue are two simple words, Jesus wept. This is from the scripture we looked at in the book of John on Easter Sunday. This is a picture that I often call to mind when I think about the question, where is God when we suffer? The good news is that God sent his son not to be exempt from suffering, but to be an example for us. And God redeemed the suffering of Christ with the promise of the resurrection. Our future is secure with Jesus. So in the meantime, just as Christ showed up and was present among God's children, we are going to keep showing up. We are going to continue to be Christ for each other and with this community. A timely text, a simple but honest prayer, a listening ear, a welcome distraction, a deeply needed laugh. We'll keep showing up with for this community. A handmade mask, a garden planted with the hope of someday soon feeding people who need it. A sturdy commitment to our local food bank, not just monetarily, but with hands eager to help. Continuing to walk with young families experiencing poverty and not forgetting our friends in Haiti. Friends of this in-between and whatever comes next in recovery, we will keep proclaiming and demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ who joined our suffering to secure a future without it. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the precious gift of your word. This firm foundation that's strong enough for us to bring our questions, that's strong enough for us to bring our doubts, that's strong enough for us to put upon it our frustration, our uncertainty, our anxiety, And God, I hope that we've been both challenged and encouraged from your words today. Help us remember that your own son, who you love more deeply than can be described, you sent to us for our sake to suffer in our place, to join us in our suffering. Help us to remember That in Jesus, you didn't send him to conquer. You sent him to suffer. And through that suffering, he showed us victory over death. Help us to be set free from being slaves to the fear of death and dying. Help us remember, even in the midst of suffering, that we claim the hope of new life in Jesus' name. Help us not just to know this love, but to demonstrate it, especially when times are hard. Help us to show people the promise of a future with you. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen.